Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hi everyone, today's episode is with Nandini Das. Nandini runs the TIDE project, which is a five-year European Research Council-funded project that aims to investigate how mobility in the great age of travel and discovery shaped English perceptions of human identity, based on cultural identification and difference. We talk about travel in the Elizabethan age and how that affected and differed from later imperial travel, and the purposes of travel during this period. Nandini also draws some fascinating and insightful parallels with the modern day and our attitude to travel and people of different cultures and ethnicities. You can check out the Thai Project online at thaiproject.uk and I hope you enjoy this episode. Nandini Das, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about your fantastic Tide Project research, which we've just been talking about and I've been singing its praises to you on off this recording. Could you explain what the Tide Project is and what it is that you're focusing on? Thanks, Helen. So Tide is an acronym for travel, transculturality and identity in England. And we focus on 1550 to 1700. So a span of years essentially before British Empire becomes a thing, but just after the English begin to realise that they're falling really far behind their next-door neighbours on the continent in terms of getting a share of global trade and exploration and everything else that it entailed. That's interesting. So England are actually surprisingly behind other European superpowers? Well, they are. Um, By the time the English really begin to go out and start bidding for a share in international trade in South Asia, for instance, the Portuguese already have been there for, well, almost 150 years. So they are very conscious that they needed to throw their hat in the ring as soon as possible, or they'd miss their chance. 
So this this is all before Empire, and um, it's interesting because Empire is a big um, hot topic of discussion at the moment. Um, it's very present in current discourse. But this is all about the age of travel. I mean, when do you consider that this great age of travel begins, and, and, and is that why that you focus on this particular period? It's a tricky question in the sense that if you asked some of the Elizabethan travellers and merchants and geographers themselves, they'd say, well, you know, it doesn't begin. It has already and always been there. So one of the people I particularly work on is a man called Richard Hacklett, who wrote perhaps the biggest collection of travel writing in the period. He goes around and collects all these travel accounts by merchants and sailors and adventurers and puts them together because he says that all England's continental neighbours laugh at England for not travelling enough, for being homebound, where the actuality is that the English have always travelled. So one of the things that Hackler does is he starts right with old medieval texts. In fact, in his first collection, The Principal Navigations, he starts with Mandeville. And Mandeville's stories about, you know, men without heads or their heads stuck in their chests, men who walk upside down and have a large foot that they can handily use as umbrellas in regions where it rains. All those strange things come into his collection precisely because of that, because he is very keen to emphasize the fact that the English have always been a seafaring nation. But I suppose the reality is that post-1570s, once Elizabeth had been excommunicated by the Pope, the English are deeply conscious that they need to find an alternative to Europe and to European markets, particularly for English wool, English industries. And when they start looking abroad, almost every port they go to there are Portuguese ships, Spanish ships, French ships already there. And that's a problem. So what were the, um, globally, where was the most popular areas of interest for the, for the English, but also some of the, um, some of the other continental powers? I think the easiest way of thinking about that is to think geographically, but also in terms of time. So, it comes very naturally to Elizabethan travellers to think about the old world and the new world, Um, the old world of the East and the new world of the Americas, essentially. When it comes to the old world, they have a lot to fall back on. They have the whole past history of the Crusades to fall back on when they're thinking about the Middle East, for instance. Um, They have all those classical texts um, from Plutarch and Pliny onwards to fall back on when they're thinking about the Indies, for instance. But then the moment we say the word Indies or India, you can figure out that, you know, there's a problem there because, of course, Indies has moved by this stage, thanks to Columbus, who's messed up geography like no one else. And now the New World has its own Indies. So for the English they are constantly looking both ways. They're looking at New World as initial colonial possessions or the potential for colonial possessions. And they're looking at the old world. So they're looking at the Ottoman Empire, the Mughal Empire, the Persian Safavid Empires as the the old standard old familiar markets. 
And what sort of um, what sort of goods were they able to find there? I think they you know they came, they went out looking for wool, but they came back with a lot more, didn't they? Yes. Well, Hacklet includes lots of handy shopping lists in his principal navigations, for instance. So we know that they are really interested in dyes, cloth dyes. And again, it all comes back largely to the crisis in the English cloth industry. You know, here is this little island which produces excellent wool. One has to say that. And for decades, in fact, for hundreds of years, they had produced this excellent wool, sent it over to continental Europe, where that wool would have been processed into woolen cloth and then sold. All of a sudden, that market seems to have dried up. So the English have to figure out ways of, how do I put it, to zhuzh up their cloth, essentially. And the way they do it is by looking out for new, fancy new dyes and things. So they're looking for that. They're looking for spices. Buying their spice from the Venetians and the Dutch is terribly expensive. And if you're going to have meat that hasn't been refrigerated, you really need spices in this period. So they're looking for spices. They're also looking for luxury items. In England has a huge appetite in this period for fancy new things. Tudor bling is very much a thing in this period. So you want your Turkish carpet on your fancy new table. You want the latest globes. You want perfumed fancy Italian gloves. But at the same time, you quite have your eye on that Colombian pearl that your neighbor sports in his ear, and you want something like that. So there's that whole range of things. So it's for his historians, it's a great resource. It's a great source for all of this information on material culture and material desire in the Elizabethan period. Absolutely. There's a lot of eyeing others' possessions and, you know, discreet pointing their fingers at, I want some of that too going on. Um, but it's wonderful for us who are, you know, if you're interested in how people actually lived and what they did in the 16th and 17th centuries, it's absolutely fascinating to see how things like Chinese porcelain travel all the way from China on Dutch ships, come to Germany and to Spain, then to England, where people have no clue what to do with these funny little cups. I mean, how do you even hold them? What are they for? So what they do is put a silver frame around it with two little handles and turn them into wine cups. So there's a whole history of everyday life and living and of material culture there, I think. So how were the English received? And that's not just by the people who were in indigenous cultures, but how were they received also by their um, their counterparts, by the Dutch, by the Portuguese? Was there conflict on either side, or was it quite a um, was it quite an, like an immersive and inclusive welcome? That's so optimistic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that would be wonderful. But yeah, I think finances and money tends to mess up all sense of you know whatever European brotherhood um, can be dreamt up. Not familiar with that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I think it depends. It depended on where you were and when you were, to some extent, and who the other people were. 
at the time present there. So take a little example. There's a moment in around 1583 when the very first English voyage is funded um, by a bunch of really wealthy investors, essentially, in London. And off they go to Mughal India, holding a letter from Elizabeth I to introduce themselves. And their aim is to get a bite of that huge South Asian trade that they know that the Portuguese have pretty much cornered. So they go to Goa, but the moment they get to Goa, they are shoved into jail by the Portuguese governor of Goa, who takes one look at them and goes, nah, you know, you're not going to wander around my streets. The person who bails them out, there are two people, really, who bail them out. One of them is a Jesuit priest. Now, if you know about the Protestants and the Catholics, and particularly the Jesuits, that in itself is a big mystery. You know, why would a Jesuit priest bail out the, this bunch of Englishmen? Well, the reason was that this particular Jesuit priest, Padre Estevam, is actually English. He's a man called Thomas Stevens. So he's a Catholic who'd been driven out of his country, found himself halfway across the world in Goa, where he's happily running his seminary. And suddenly there are these Englishmen, suddenly there are these familiar accents and faces. He has to help them. And the other person who helps them is a Dutchman, who's a secretary to the Catholic Archbishop of Goa, but happens to be himself to be Protestant. So for these two people, there are reasons for help, helping these Englishmen. They're united either by nationality or by religion. Whereas the Portuguese governor is separated, is an enemy, because of both nationality and religion. So basically, it's a big mess, but an interesting one. <laughs> yeah, so it does sort of challenge these preconceptions and and stereotypes that you might have in, in your mind about how this cross-cultural exchange can go on. So the purpose of travel, you know, we've talked about this idea of trade and exploration. Was that really it or were there, were there more purpose, purposes behind it? So was it was it just simply a mode of obtaining more goods for England, like you say, the dye, or was it was it a case of expansion and um, territory? Ah, again, I think it would depend on who you were asking and who they thought they were giving their answers to. If you were a very dutiful, you know, young twenty-something Englishman going on a ship and you were asked this by one of your elders, a bearded Tudor statesman, you know, coming up to you and saying, son, why do you want to go? Um, you'd probably give the received or the expected answer, which is that travel has to be both for profit and pleasure. Um, you were going because you wanted to be like Ulysses, and you wanted to see the, with the eyes of Ulysses and learn lots about the world. But at the same time, you were going to keep sneaky little notes about all those forts and all those encampments you saw on the way. And you're going to get a few useful trading formulae that you can give your native merchants when you come back. So there was a combination of both. But here's the interesting thing. It's also this period when you suddenly begin to have a few people, admittedly not very many, but a few people who start traveling for pleasure. And my absolute favorite is complete, absolutely eccentric man, Thomas Coriat, who cottons on to this idea of 
travel bets, essentially. He takes wagers and he says, right, I'm going to walk all the way around, across Europe. And who's going to take bets on that with me, that I'll be able to do that? And he builds a career out of it. We find him in Venice. We find him on the caravan route between the Ottoman and the Persian empires, chatting with the English ambassador of the Persian, Sophie. Um, we find him hollering out kind of half-baked Persian speeches at the court of the Mughal emperor by the end of his career. So you have all these different kinds of people who are going for very different reasons. What about the other way around? So how, what was the response to other cultures and other races and ethnicities coming back into England and into Europe as well? I mean, how were people received when when they were unfamiliar with the with the with the land that's an interesting question because it brings up certain issues that are deeply deeply familiar to us now in current debates so the biggest kind of influxes of strangers as they were called in those days came in peaks and troughs throughout this period they came largely from continental europe these influxes of religious exiles, Protestants, who had been driven out by Spanish occupation from the low countries, as they were called, you know, partly our contemporary Netherlands, or the Huguenots from France who'd come over. And we have those peaks in 1570s, 1580s, 1590s. Some of them settle down, get assimilated within, not only in London, but in other English towns and villages. In East Anglia, all tab, there are numerous towns and villages which have sprinklings of Dutch weavers bringing in what's called the new draperies, these fancy new weaving methods. We also have, you know, if you think about Tudor art, and if you think about our visual imagining of the Tudor world, it's strange to be reminded sometimes that all those visual memories, actually, the larger part of those visual memories are created by immigrant artists like Hans Holbein. These are images that we now associate with a golden age of English culture. But they were created by these immigrant artists. And the reception to that is very much mixed. On the one hand, you have English apprentices, English merchants who are deeply worried and they're worried about the same, because of the same reasons that people have been worried in recent years about immigration. The same kind of responses crop up. There's only limited resources. We're an island nation. We should be taking care of our poor first before offering help to others. All those familiar responses come up. And the defences are also deeply familiar. So in the 1590s, there's a big really kind of heated debate in the parliament precisely on this question of what to do with the strangers, the stranger problem, as it's called. Um, and the defenders of stranger rights or stranger communities also very rightly point out, look, these are people who are coming to England. They pay a significantly higher rate tax than the indigenous English, and they're bringing in foreign investment. We need their resources and they are useful citizens. 
leave alone all questions of Christian charity, it makes financial and practical sense to have them within the country. So there's a push and pull on both sides. And it comes out through all those words that enter the kind of cultural landscape in this period, you know, words like alien and stranger and foreigner, and what that means. What does it mean to be different or to belong? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Would you say that there is the same exchange when the English landed in other countries as well? Or do you think that the English had more of a sense of self-righteousness and a a sense of purpose that they imposed on people rather than sought to be accepted by people? I think there's a degree of evangelism associated with English colonial and mercantile kind of efforts abroad. And by that, I mean a form of rationalization of international activity by saying, that starts off by saying, look, we are different from the Spanish and the Protestants. You can't trust them, trust us. And that difference comes from the fact that we are Protestants. But then it soon kind of moves into other kind of of rationalizations. So in the New World, in the Americas, quite often... English colonies are defended on the basis that the Native Americans don't know how to use the land they're on. So in a way, they're not making proper use of God's gift to humanity. And that becomes a viable and very popular legal kind of defense of colonial land appropriation. This idea that itinerant indigenous habits an itinerant rotating farming, for instance, isn't proper cultivation. Of course, it was proper cultivation, and it continues to be proper cultivation. It's just not English cultivation. The English were deeply unfamiliar. Because of being such a small island nation, you tended to stay put on your land for generations. You didn't wander around. There wasn't much land to wander about on. But once they go to Virginia, for instance, and see the Powhatan tribe, 
their defense of creating the Virginia colony becomes this argument that this is land created by God that is not being used, and therefore it is ours to claim. Right, yeah, and that idea was perpetuated into empire, really, this idea of the English way is the best way. And, I mean, do you think that this period was, did it pave the way for empire and colonialism, or do you think that it was a period of more grace for other cultures and more of an interest in other cultures? I think it's risky to create binaries in public perception. And we know that from our own experience. You know, If you troll at any point through social media, on Twitter or Facebook, at any of those flashpoints in recent months and over the last year when race has been an issue, you're bound to find extreme views on both parts. The significant thing, I think, is that human response, and English response, certainly in this period, was as messy as it is now. So at the same time, when the English are going to their church and listening to sermons, which quote from the book of Jeremiah, which tells you that for the sinner who is deeply steeped in sin, It's as impossible to wash away their sin as it is to wash an Ethiop white. You have a sense of that innate association between blackness and sin being created right then and there. But those people who are going to those churches may also be people who come out and then rub shoulders with other dark-skinned people who we know lived in contemporary London. They might know other people who have shock, horror, even married, happily married people of other skin colours in contemporary London. So there are both sides to that. I mean, I was talking about Richard Hacklett earlier. So Hacklett, one of the biggest kind of arguments he makes about establishing colonies is that he says, well, you know, we're short of space. It's an island nation. Establishing colonies abroad is a really convenient way of getting rid of all those problematic people whom we don't want to keep on our island. Rather than sending them to jail, send them over to the colonies, which will become a very familiar argument later on for us. But at the same time, Hacklett is also someone who is publishing word lists of other languages and creating, whether consciously or, you know, inadvertently, a sense of the richness of the world beyond England and beyond Europe. And that's a sense that didn't quite exist in that same way before this particular period, I think. That's really interesting. And you're you're absolutely right when you point out that it isn't, it wasn't a binary world then as it is a binary world now, as as, it is not a binary world now. You know, there were members of society who were black people and people who were very much, as you say, married into into families and welcomed into societies. But there was also an, an obviously extraordinary level of bias and prejudice and racism as well. So it's fascinating to look into the work that you're doing and see how these relationships are being forged and and the ways in which that the people that the people are traveling. So 
how can people how can people tap into what your your research is about now because you've got this big project going on it's not just you it's you've got a whole team who are working on this how can people um read more about your research and your team's research um yes i've i've been very lucky to have a fantastic team working with me on it it's a kind of interdisciplinary team of historians and literary critics people who are interested in material culture and art history and people doing whizzy things with technology and digital humanities, all kinds of things. The first stop for us, I suppose, is the project website, tideproject.uk, where we tend to put up a lot of our research, ongoing research. This particular project is funded by the European Research Council and one of the requirements of that funding is that all of our research has to be open access. It has to be freely available. And that really is the way we like it. These are things that we are tremendously excited about and we want and like talking about it. So that's the first stop. One of our major kind of outputs is going to be published later this year, a book called Keywords of Identity. And that looks precisely at some of that vocabulary of belonging that was emerging in this period. And that vocabulary of belonging is very much still present here and now, you know, when people talk about foreigners or when they're talking about others of religion, um, defined by religion or by race, by skin colour or by language. We kind of go back right to the sources sometimes of the moments where those definitions start being contested, they start being pushed and pulled in different ways. And sometimes within a period of a decade or so, something that had been perhaps far more benign in a previous period, it starts changing colour in a later period. So, for instance, take the word gypsy. There is a moment where it's deeply associated with the kind of false etymology that associates it with Egyptians. And then that changes, it shifts, and it changes implications to some extent. And it gets associated with another cluster of words, rogues and vagabonds. So if people are interested in how words work, and we think through them, so they are pretty important, tied keywords, which is online now, is something to go to. But also, I mean, some of the really fun stuff we've been doing over this entire project has been working with other creative writers. And that has been a major, major bit of our work where every year, and honestly, Helen, it's hair-raising for us because as academics, we're not used to kind of handing over unprocessed research quite often to other people to make sense of. But what we've done is every year we've handed over the year's research to our visiting writers and invited them to respond to that. So actually, if reading creative writing rather than history is more your thing for particular readers or particular um, user, listeners to this podcast, you know, I would be happy to recommend things like Fred Degas' new book of poems, which has a bunch of poems inspired by the Tide Project. There's also the wonderful Tide Salon, which was created by our visiting writer last year, Preeti Taneja, the award-winning novelist. And Preeti worked with a group of, I mean, 
terrifyingly talented South Asian, young South Asian word artists and musicians. And what they did was respond to some of our keywords research and create new music and new poetry. And we created a digital installation on the basis of that. So if, if your listeners Google Tide Salon, that should come up on internet searches. And that is a nice way of getting into the world that we've been inhabiting for the last five years. Yeah, I love I love different interpretations of, of history. And I think that that's a wonderful collaboration to to be making. And it doesn't surprise me, actually, that you're um, working with, with writers in that sense, because the characters that you've discussed even in this podcast, they sound very narrative. <laughs> you could, they, they sound like characters that would pop out of a, um, of a novel almost. And the way you talk about the, the research and the expeditions that people are going on is quite lyrical. And I can definitely understand how that would inspire some, um, some, some literature. I mean, here's the other thing though. I mean, if I can jump in there, because on the one hand, these characters are really fascinating. And, you know, I kind of go through phases where I would happily wave bunches of stuff at writers and say, write a novel about this person. They're absolutely fascinating. But the other thing is that so many of these records we have are so fragmented that it's very difficult to create a cohesive historical narrative to recover their voices Imagination has to take a role there to bring them to life. And that's something where our writers have been hugely influential, I think. For us as researchers, it's very difficult to tread outside or even dare to tread outside a world where we can define our boundaries and our bases in footnotes. Our work is literally grounded on those footnotes. But there is so much to their lives beyond that. And we know so little about it. Nandini, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you about about the Tide Project. And I heartily encourage anybody who's listening to go and check out your research because it's fascinating. And and I think the the work that you're doing with the with the narrative writers as well, I think would be fabulous to read and the poetry. So thank you so much for for doing all of that. And I think it's a wonderful resource to look at the world and travel and people before empire and how these um how these cross-cultural relationships were being formed because so much focus is on empire at the moment, but I think it's really important also to look at what was going on before that. So thank you so much for coming on Hidden Histories. Thank you very much, Helen. Thank you for inviting me. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 